0: You're listening to PolarPod from the Oxford University Polar Forum.
1: Hello and welcome back to PolarPod.
0: I'm Roberta Wilkinson.
1: I'm Sam Cornish.
0: And we're your PolarPod co-hosts trying not to melt in a (laughs) heatwave.
1: And in this episode, we'll be returning to colder regions to learn about how scientists are trying to determine exactly how much carbon can come out of frozen ground when that ground thaws.
0: And that's pretty crucial, right, to know or be able to predict the effect of permafrost thawing on climate change, like how much carbon will be released.
1: Exactly. And we'll be finding out in this episode why it is such a hard thing to be able to predict. Mm. But to start off with, I'd like you to visualise, Roberta, an Arctic landscape, T- which I today. think you'll find a cooling...
0: <laughs> <laughs> today of all days, I will happily do yeah,
1: that. Yeah, maybe a challenge, but it, it might help to, to kind of cool your psyche down mm. a little bit. Um, so let me play something for you to get you in that mood. What words come to mind if I asked you to picture an Arctic landscape? cold, Harsh, icy. Associate Professor Mark Massius Fauria from the University of Oxford has an alternative, slightly softer perspective for us to consider. He says that in summertime, parts of this environment behave like butter. Uh,
2: in a way, you can imagine the, the permafrost regions of the Arctic, they are like geomorphology of butter. Extremely fast, both the, the erosion rates and the dynamism of the river banks and the emerging lakes, the draining lakes, the merging lakes. The, the, it's, it's an extremely dynamic uh, hydrological system. A landscape that, on a yearly basis, changes changes amazingly. It changes in front of your eyes. Suddenly you have a lake. Suddenly you don't have a lake. Suddenly there was a forest. It sank. Uh, it was captured by an an expanding uh, erosive feature of, of a nearby river. That's what we would see.
1: In this dynamic environment, the carbon locked up in frozen ground or permafrost is vulnerable.
0: In the previous episode, we looked at how carbon gets into the ground and how the freezing temperatures in the Arctic help to protect it from being decomposed by microbes, much like how we put food in the freezer to preserve it
1: now we ask what happens to that carbon when the freezer opens when permafrost thaws and we'll be discovering that when we lift the lid on that freezer there are some surprises hidden down there stay with us
0: an arctic landscape where there are these lakes that are there and then they're suddenly not there what what is that about these lakes appearing and disappearing
1: Mm, so these lakes are known as thermocast Thermocast
3: lakes Lakes. so those are lakes that form because of the thawing of ice-rich permafrost sediments so because there's a lot of ice when that ice in the ground melts then you have a lot of volume loss and often a lake forms
1: this is the voice of Luca jongians who i think you might remember from our previous two episodes
3: yes yeah there's a lot of thermokarst lakes in the arctic
1: and you can see this for yourself if you go roaming around the arctic on google maps and each of these lakes is like its own little microclimate because in the summertime the water warms up the lakes are open and the sun is shining but in the winter there's a cap of ice and snow on top of the lakes which means that the water beneath can kind of stay warm, stay insulated from that cold winter air. And as a result, the sediments at the bottom can be significantly warmer than the annual mean air temperature.
3: And underneath these lakes, we have the thawing of sediments. And that's why we look there at the organic matter.
1: And during her PhD at the Alfred Wegener Institute, Luke has been asking the question, how much carbon can be released from the sediments underlying these thermocast lakes?
3: because these sediments are thawing and it's, it's deep sediments too. Like it's, um, when you talk about permafrost thaw from the top to the bottom, like by uh, only the increase of temperature, for example, then you're talking about a few centimeters, um, but we're looking at rapid thaw processes. So
0: we talked about in the last episode, how permafrost can actually be quite resilient to thawing because, um, the thawed layer creates a bit of a blanket. Uh, an insulating blanket almost over the top of the permafrost so the rest of it doesn't thaw as quickly mm. but this isn't that is it this, these are more catastrophic thawing events
1: that's right this is rapid thaw um, where there's lots of rapid ice in the thaw. system there's
0: a, <laughs> there's a superhero called
3: rapid thaw somewhere <laughs>
1: yeah. I think he's a villain mm-hmm. not a not a hero
3: We're looking at rapid thaw processes where really until 30 meter, for example, you have thawed sediments underneath these lakes.
1: 30 meters?
3: 30 meters, yeah. So my sediment cores were 17 meters long.
1: So Luca and her team had been out to Siberia and had collected sediment cores from beneath two thermocast lakes.
3: And there we measured the greenhouse gas production. And we looked at sediments that were thawed before, so in previous lake phases in the past thousands of years and sediments that were thawed underneath a new lake that formed only 70 years ago. So she's got one core where it's only been
0: thawed once and then one core where it's thawing and freezing and thawing and freezing.
3: Yeah,
1: she's got one core where the lake is there's a new lake and so it's beginning to thaw now for the first time. Yeah. And another core where at that point in space there have been multiple lakes there before. Mm. And so that core has thawed and frozen multiple times in the past. Yeah. And so she wanted to measure how much greenhouse gas would be produced from these thawed sediments from both sites. Oh. Um, and then to see if there was any difference between the two because sites. Because
0: you might think that if it had thawed and been refrozen and thawed and been refrozen, that it might have released sort of it's it's carbon already and might not be as bad. Yeah, exactly. That might be your h- hypothesis.
1: That's a great um, hypothesis, Roberta. Yeah. Let's see. Let's <laughs> see whether
0: it's correct.
1: So Luca took these samples back to her lab and set up a year-long incubation experiment to measure the greenhouse gases.
3: Um, so I had 17 samples with all three replicates. I put them in small bottles. I filled in all these bottles the sediments and some water and then flush the bottles with nitrogen gas so that it would be fully anaerobic. You try as much as you can to have no oxygen contamination.
1: And that's because these samples were collected from the bottom of a lake.
0: And at the bottom of a lake, there isn't very much oxygen. So she's trying to
3: replicate those conditions. Exactly. Yeah, so I would have the samples in the fridge in my building. And then I would take my little cool box on a small cart that I would pull down the hill. And then I would come into the lab and I had quite a long day of measurements ahead of me because every sample takes about five minutes. Every sample I had to go in with a needle, extract a little bit of the gas, and then put that into the gas chromatographer and that would measure the gas composition for me. So that would give me a reading Um, So I just got the data from there, copied them in my Excel table. And then I could see whether they were different from the week before or two weeks before. And in some samples, really nothing was produced. So that was kind of a bummer. Mm -hmm. And every week or every two weeks that I would come into the lab, then I would hope that there would be something produced there. Which is weird because, well, it's better if it's not, right? It's better if all our predictions until now are way too much and there's actually not so much coming out
1: right yeah it would be better if no methane was being produced
3: right but that's you don't want to see in the lab right
1: (laughs) but for you you're like come on little microbes you can do it
3: (laughs) (laughs) you can do it
1: (laughs) however as time went on luca found that
3: almost all values went up
1: meaning that greenhouse gases were being formed by microbial decomposition but which sample was leading to more greenhouse gas production?
3: We found that the greenhouse gas production was higher in, in the newly thought sediments. So that means that the organic matter, the labile organic matter fraction is still preserved in these sediments that were never thawed before.
1: So the labile part of organic matter is the part that's easiest to decompose.
3: Whereas it has already been decomposed in the sediments that were thawed before in previous lake phases.
1: Which means, Roberta, that you were right.
3: Hooray!
1: As if it was ever in doubt.
0: Oh, you're too kind, Sam.
1: So, Roberta, I like to think of this in terms of a buffet. Uh, Now, imagine a buffet. What is your favourite food at the buffet?
0: Oh, it's got to be the spring rolls, I would say. Mm.
1: Okay, spring rolls. Nice. Good choice. Um, So, imagine that the buffet opens up and everyone goes in. And you're going straight for the spring rolls.
3: Yeah, of course.
1: But so is everyone else. (gasps) Yep. You've got competition because they're going to have a bit of this and that, but they're all mad for the spring rolls. And well, what don't you like at the buffet? Uh,
0: like like an egg and cress sandwich. I feel like that always Those gets left. Those little triangle ones. Yeah, yeah,
1: with that nasty white bread that doesn't have crusts on it. Mm. Yeah. So no one's interested in egg and cress sandwiches. Yeah. Um, so in this analogy, our spring rolls are the labile part of the organic matter. Um, so there's lots of different compounds, lots of different types of food that comprise organic matter. And you're a microbe, I'm afraid. Sorry to downgrade you. (laughs) It's alright, I've been been called worse. (laughs) So the significance of this really is that the newly thawed sediments that Lucas got have still got a lot of spring rolls to offer. And that means that the microbes are going to be very happy. They've got lots to eat because they they love the spring rolls. So
0: they produce lots of methane.
1: Exactly, yeah. Mm. Whereas in the sediments that have thawed previously, the buffet's only got... Egg and crust sandwiches left
0: because mm, the microbes have already eaten all the spring rolls in the previous times so that they turned yeah. up for the buffet
1: exactly, so they're not going to eat very much basically, and as a result, the emissions are lower
0: okay, okay, it makes sense, but I'm a little bit offended because I think you're suggesting that I produce a lot of methane, Sam. <laughs>
1: All of this could be more complicated outside of these controlled incubation environments uh, because you could have new microbes coming in who like to eat, uh, I don't know, pineapple wedges and chicken wings and some of them like the egg sandwiches, like a new crowd coming into the buffet with with different tastes. Um, So there are a lot of variables here.
0: Okay, but that makes sense. So in Luca's experiment, everything's really simplified but actually we know that like buffets are more complex than that and as are these sediment cores but the the essence of it is that this labile material that just means the organic matter that the microbes prefer and can gobble up and will make them produce the most gas and once that's gone they produce less and less
1: And it's due to variability like this that it's really hard to be able to accurately predict how much CO2 and methane will be produced from thawing permafrost.
3: You cannot measure, for example, the total organic carbon content and say then this must come out. You need many more parameters and probably more complex biomarkers.
1: Biomarkers refers to the types of molecules in the organic matter, and in our analogy refers to the types of food on offer at the buffet.
3: And mainly also look at the microbes, what microbes are there, to explain why in some sediments there was a lot of greenhouse gases produced and in others there wasn't.
1: So sticking with this theme of rapid thaw processes, I think it's time to revisit the opening scene that we had in episode one.
2: The bottom of
3: this cliff. So there's a constant drip, drip or plop, plop of mud that falls down into the thawed ground.
1: As Professor Chris Byrne was telling us about a cliff of ice and mud that was thawing away. And this is what's known as a thaw slump. And Luca has been working at the biggest thaw slump in the world. A place that's known to locals as the gateway to the underworld. The Batterguy thaw slump.
3: Wow. And this is a retrogressive thaw slump, the, the largest known in the world.
1: And Luca explained that a thaw slump is is
3: a feature that forms due to thawing of ice-rich sediments, permafrost, and on a light slope. Which means that as soon as these ice-rich sediments thaw, there's a lot of liquid water and because it's on a slope, then it starts sliding down, it slumps down. So that's why it's a thaw slump.
1: And what's particularly curious about the Batagai thaw slump, the largest of its kind in the world is that it actually initiated in response to a human disturbance of the landscape. Luca told me that back in the 1960s, there was a mine nearby and basically lots of heavy goods vehicles would be rolling through this part of the landscape. And in response to that disturbance, a hollow began to develop as part of the permafrost thawed. And that collected more and more snow, which kept the ground warm in the wintertime, prevented it losing lots of heat to the atmosphere. And it just went from there, basically. And since then, you know, climate change has kicked in and the the Thor slump has just grown and grown as it moved backwards through this ice rich ground.
0: So how big is
3: this Thor slump now?
1: Well, Luca said that when she was there, the Thor slump was about...
3: 1.9 kilometers long and almost a kilometer wide. Wow, that's huge. almost 50 meters deep. And what does it look like? The slump itself, well, from the air, it looks really pretty, because uh, really? it's kind of like a, um, um, you know, like a frog baby.
1: Oh, like what frog spawn called? or something. Yeah, it's or, or kind tadpoles. of that shape. I looked at that, Roberta, it's tadpole shaped.
0: Yeah. So what is it? It's like, um, it's just like a big hole in the ground in the shape of a tadpole, and it's like wet. But it's not a lake. So if you
1: imagine, if you imagine like the head of the tadpole. Yeah. The, the line that you would draw, if, so if you're drawing a tadpole on a piece of paper, yeah. the line that defines like the head of the tadpole, that's a cliff where the ground is collapsing. It's 50-metre-high cliff. And then the body of the tadpole is a sort of hollowed-out landscape where that material has collapsed. And it's in the summertime, it's very muddy. And then it forms a sort of river channel that cuts down and defines the tail of the tadpole.
0: Ah, I see. So... In the summertime, it's muddy, but in the wintertime, is it frozen again or no?
1: Yeah. So that's why I was so surprised when she said that it looked really pretty because I've seen thaw slumps before in Canada, but in the summertime. And there's something quite eerie and disturbing about seeing this big, like dark scar on the landscape because it's where the ground is literally like decaying into a slurry. But having seen pictures of Guy, I can understand why she says it's beautiful. Because in the winter time, it's frozen, it's covered in snow, and yeah, it looks a completely different animal to the summer
0: or a completely different tadpole, perhaps. <laughs>
1: <laughs> a beautiful white tadpole. The yeah.
3: coolest part was when we when we arrived there the first day, and I realised I was totally overdressed because you're going to walk through what was it thirty centimeters of snow and you have to create the first path and you're carrying the stuff. And we had to walk kind of around the slump because we had to park on a safe distance and then come on the other side where we wanted to set up camp. And then we came around and we found a way to get down into the slump button. And then what you see is a 50 to 55 meter high wall of frozen sediments with huge bodies of ice in it so these are called ice wedges they form over thousands tens of thousands of years and it's i mean it's so impressive I, I get goosebumps thinking about it because it was so it was so cool finally being there and then you stand there and it's huge you know and we were there especially in spring because um then It's still frozen because if you're there in summer, then a lot of thawing is happening. Obviously, this slump is um, growing by tens of meters every year and only in the summer season. And therefore, a lot of new material is exposed every every summer. So in summer, actually, a lot of people come there to hunt the ivory and they take the bones of the musk oxes of the Horses of of the mammoths that would be the white gold, of course.
0: So when she's talking about people coming to kind of hunt the ivory, she doesn't mean killing things. She means like fossil stuff that's kind of been preserved and inside the permafrost yeah. as it melts. So as this thaw slumps mm. collapsing, there are like bones falling out of it of species like mammoths that we don't have anymore.
1: Yeah, exactly. It's it is like fossil hunting, as you said, except for these animals are still beautifully preserved. And Luca told me a story about a farmer that really illustrates this amazingly.
3: A farmer just found a tusk and started pulling on it on on his land. And then it turned out there was a whole mammoth attached.
1: No way. And similar discoveries have been made at Batagai.
3: A few years ago, they they found a complete, um, I'm not sure about the word, a baby horse, a foal. A foal, yeah. Foal, yeah. So a few years back, they found a foal stored in the Batagai's exposure. Wow and it was completely preserved. And I was there in Yakutsk when they opened it for the press. And they actually cut it open a little bit. And it was still red meat. And it had its hair and everything. And it was about 30,000 years old. And there you find an animal that is completely preserved because of these, uh, the permafrost conditions It's amazing.
1: That's wild. (laughs)
3: yes i was i was so excited when i when i was i was there by accident really or by chance i was in this mammoth museum in yakutsk and then at that exact day that i was there they opened it for the press and they asked me to be there
1: wow so they they opened when you say they opened it for the press they actually (laughs) physically cut this little baby horse open
3: no they sorry opened um out of the plastic (laughs) okay (laughs) <laughs> well, they cut it a little bit, yes. And they took some samples.
1: The guy thaw slump really is the gateway to the underworld. Uh, At least it's a gateway to the past.
0: Yes, okay. Because as the permafrost is thawing in the slump, it's literally like spitting out cryogenically preserved bodies of animals, some of which have been extinct for many years, like mammoths.
1: Every chapter of Luca's PhD thesis begins with a haiku, which I think is very cool and is another great demonstration of the ways in which science and imagination belong together, as per episode one. And we're about to listen to the one that she wrote in response to her experience at the Batagai Thor slump.
3: Between the tusks rise, tall ice wedges like giants, I stand before them. Like that brings me right back to standing there and seeing this huge wall.
1: I feel like we've learned a lot from Luca in this episode, Roberta. Mm, yeah. We've learned, first of all, how it is that scientists like Luca go and go about predicting how much carbon might come out of permafrost if and when it thaws.
0: Yeah, and she told us as well about um, how not all carbon in the ground is the same, which I thought was really interesting. So some of it is much more appealing and much more sort of tasty for the microbes.
1: Yeah, you're right. And therefore, knowing how much carbon is in the ground isn't enough to be able to predict exactly the emissions from the ground.
0: Yeah yeah and we've learned too about how permafrost can thaw and then transform a landscape and completely and open up these amazing like windows into the past into other worlds almost which is just kind of blows my mind.
1: Exactly and and that is where we're going to be going next time into the past so Buckle up, fasten your seatbelts, because we are Destination Ice Age.
0: <laughs> and a little housekeeping as we end. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and share. PolarPod comes to you from the Oxford University Polar Forum. It's co-hosted by Sam Cornish and me, Roberta Wilkinson. Reporting production and original music by Sam Cornish and sound design by Jahad Sahib.